folks, welcome to Then Again with the Northeast Georgia History Center and the Cottrell Digital Studio. I'm Glenn Kyle. I am the executive director here. And today we are going to learn something about a fascinating topic that is, of course, near and dear to my heart. Uh, the Northeast Georgia History Center is located in Gainesville, which is what you might call just on the edge of Appalachia. And I have here with me uh, Dr. Barry Whittemore, who is a professor at the University of North Georgia. And this is his, as we say, his area of expertise. He knows things. Barry, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and where you come from. Well, um, I wasn't born in Appalachia, uh, but my mother was. Uh, she was from uh, Southwest Virginia in the Blue Ridge section. I was born and raised in Norfolk, for a typical working class kid. It took me a while to get going academically. I uh, went off to college and studied what other people told me I ought to. That did not end well. So I was in the Army for a while and came back. And uh, I didn't really get interested into Appalachian studies knowing that it existed until I was working on a master's degree at Radford. So after I graduated from Tech, Virginia Tech, that's <laughs> 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 where we are. And that really grabbed me, and uh, I ended up going on to uh, Carnegie Mellon to get my doctorate, concentrated in Appalachian history, actually studying the area that my mother was from. My dissertation was basically eight mini urban biographies, you know, how these towns were created, which ones made it, which ones they didn't make it. And I've always had a checkered career. I mean, I did construction for a while, and then I taught for a while, and then I got rift from a, a small college that went bankrupt, and I ended up going into ministry and did ministry uh, for a while, but have gotten back into uh, history, which is my first love. I've been at the University of North Georgia now for 10 years, and it was the fact that we have the Georgia Appalachian Studies Center and my specialty was Appalachian history. It kind of got me the job and it sort of got me ensconced into teaching those classes. I'm really happy about that. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, you know, and a lot of us who grew up in this area have a hard time putting a finger on what it means, you know, to be Appalachian. So the, the grand question, I'm sure, in, in, in the academic world as well as the, the common man world is – is what is Appalachia? What does it consist of? What defines it? How do you know you're from it? Part of that is which one are you talking about? Ah. Because Appalachia is a set of mountains. It's it's actually two sets of mountains originating from different orogenies, which is a great word, just a mountain building episode. So we have sort of the older Blue Ridge Mountains. Then there's a valley that goes all the way down the middle. And then we have the, the more contemporary, you know, ancient still, Allegheny or Cumberland Mountains. So it's just this mountain region that starts here in Georgia and goes all the way up actually into Canada. So it, it's that. But it's also the people who settled there and the culture that they evolved. So it's the story of both a, a people and a place. Geographically, topographically two different places. Is it different places in terms of the cultures that develop? Between the East and the West, there is some difference. Uh, the Western side is, is newer mountains and it's a different rock formation. It's sedimentary rock as opposed to the, the, the older metamorphic rock that, w that we live on. So on, on our side of the Great Valley, there's no coal and coal is one of the big dividers there because if you look at Southwest Virginia, Southern West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, the coal mining there has really defined the culture to a great extent. Although we have the same, some things on both sides. Timbering had a huge influence, whether we're talking about the Blue Ridge section or the Allegheny Mountains. Well, tell me a little bit about the people who settled and sort of began to develop the culture that we consider Appalachian today. Well, it's, you know, the, 
And I know I'm asking, I'm asking, and, and listeners, you have to understand, I'm, la- I'm asking the big questions that defines the entire, you know, discipline of Appalachian studies. And I'm asking Dr. Whittemore to, to succinctly put it into a two minute blurb. So let's see how yeah. he does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All these questions could be a course in themselves. Of course, the, the, the first settlers were Native American. And, and even there, we go through waves. There's there's different layers there. I mean, when DeSoto came through, he left diseases that wiped out a large number of the Native Americans. And so the tribes we know of today are actually later ones. They had to reform. And people come into Appalachian several different ways. And they're not coming from the east. You know, if you if you look at the East Coast, you know, when, when settlers from Europe got here, they started on the coast and they moved in. But when they got to that front, then you know the Appalachian, you know, the Blue Ridge Escarpment, it was, oh, well, the land's going up two thousand feet. I think I'll stop here. Uh, yeah, that pretty much happened. And so they're gonna come through. Oddly enough, a lot of them through Philadelphia. In the 1700s, Philadelphia was the second largest city in the English-speaking world. So the first wave comes at the end of the 1600s, and they're Germans. They were mostly belonged to various religious sects. They were Anabaptists or Pietists of some sort, and they'd been chased all over Europe. And the people in Pennsylvania, being very open Quakers, invite them in. So they get to Philadelphia, and all the good land is owned by Quakers, so they go west. They're kind of out on the Pennsylvania Turnpike to what we now call, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch country or Amish country, you know, they settle there, but they're going to hit some mountains eventually also. And instead of going further west, they turn southwest, going down that valley structure through Maryland and into Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley. And so they're there. But then shortly after that, we get the Scots-Irish. And these were people who started out as Scots. Uh, who went to Ireland and felt like the English were giving them a raw deal in Ireland. So they left and they landed in Philadelphia too. And now it's full of Quakers. So they go until there's no more Quakers and there's Germans. So they go until there's no more Germans. And then they will come further down the valley and start going back up into the mountains. So we have those waves of people who come in and really start to develop a, a, a different culture because there's a, there's a separation between East and West. You know, today we like to talk about the United States as the North and the South. But it was East and West also very important at that time because the people down on the coast really didn't care what was going on up in the mountains. And one of the things that makes Appalachia difference is if we look at what I call the base culture, this kind of geography term, they talk about what, what's, the, what's the culture at the base where other cultures are layered on. And in Appalachia, the base culture is pretty much Scots-Irish, small farmers, a lot of livestock, and, and they're settling in a forest. So, you know, they got a clear foresight. So there's there's no cities, there's not many roads. So they're developing a very different culture, which is extremely communal. They're, they're scattered. But if you live in a pre-industrial agricultural society, you cannot exist as a rugged individual. I mean, if, if you want to clear land and you don't have a chainsaw, <laughs> in that, right. it takes a large communal effort, you know, just for all of those things, basic things, you know, building houses, building barns. So they develop a very communal, equalitarian society where there's a lot of interdependence that goes on because the, the irony of it is, is or what, I, what I call the yeoman paradox, a, a yeoman farmer, simplest definition. It's somebody who owns land but doesn't own people. So you're, you're sort of a classic stereotypical family farmer. Their primary value was autonomy. They wanted to be independent. But in that culture, in that economy, the only way to give, to be independent is to give some of it up, to be interdependent. 
So you have this really interesting culture that develops there of, of people who are very independent, but also communal at the same time. That is a fantastic point and is very interesting because it helps me understand some things that people have looked askance at me before because looking inside, you know, the culture, that the base culture you're talking about, that line between independence and communal dependence is very odd. And it's part of the culture because, you know, there are some things where people are like, well, I'm, and it's just, it's just inculcated in me and my, especially my parents, my grandparents, whatever, if you pick one thing and it's, well, will you help me with this? Well, no, you should be doing that yourself. And then there'll be another thing that they'll be there helping with before you even have to ask. And it seemed, I mean, is, does that seem right? It seems almost impossible to define what's on either side of that line without being a part of that culture. Yeah, it, 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 it's a vague line and it moves. It changes, of course, like everything else, you know, nothing is stationary. It changes over time as well. And, and sometimes when you get into the modern culture, we forget parts of it <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and it gets a little, little odd. Um, but yeah, it, it's, um, there's, there's a lot of things. I want to do it myself. But, you know, if, you, if you're in the culture and in the community, there are people there, you know, always ready to help sometimes whether you want them to or not. Right, right. You, you, you never ask for money, but you can ask to help clear land or, you know, to help yeah. move a building or something like that. It's, it's, very, it's very specific things and it's, very, it's yeah. very root cultural, it seems. That's actually a really good point there because if you look at the records we have, people weren't keeping track of, you know, well, I work for you three hours, so you owe me three hours. A lot of it has to do with sort of the value of the work. But also in that culture, you knew who showed up and you knew who didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and when people talk about natural leadership, that's where it was coming from. The people who were dependable, who were reliable, you know, who had some confidence and were always there to help. Well, how much, uh, if, you know, if we're talking about the, the Scotch-Irish, and that's what I'm going to force this conversation to be about mostly. They call it Scotch-Irish. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, exactly. If How much of it did they bring with them and how much of it was developed here? <laughs> I know that's a whole other course. That's an entire yeah. course. One of the things that, that helped define the Scots-Irish is they tended to be very adaptive. They were really good at, at adapting things. One example might be the Germans had this instrument <laughs> that today we call a dulcimer, but it was a kind of a dull, boring instrument. Like a modern dulcimer, the, the fretboard went the length of, of the instrument, mm -hmm. and it was sort of hollow in the middle. But the, the German instrument was kind of it was small and square. It was about three or four inches on, and they will take it and to develop it either into the uh, hourglass shape or more of a pear shape to make it bigger to get more sound out of it, so they could dance out. Of it. So it's like, oh, here's something German. And we're going to adapt it to where we can use it. You know, they do that with Native American culture, with sort of, you know, herb lore and animal lore and, and the way they farmed, you know, what they were farming. They weren't growing, you know, wheat and oats. You know, they were growing corn. So they were, they were really good at adapting culture. So part of them staying Scots-Irish is adapting parts of other cultures as well. So really, so we get that really uh, interesting blend fairly easily. So, and you know, this, this also sort of goes into this. There has been a lot of talk and supposition and theories on where that classic Appalachian accent comes from. <laughs> Let me ask this question. I know the answer, but I'm going to ask the question so that we can <laughs> kind of put this one to rest. Is the Appalachian accent very, very close to Elizabethan English? That was such a stereotype for so long. <laughs> and so many people believed it. 
this is not a joke. It's a story. I, I picked this up from Oil Jones, who's probably the, the, the preeminent person. You know, he's very senior now. But I heard him talk about uh, back in the 1960s when this uh, stereotype was really prevalent. There was this fellow from upstate New York, you know, who had heard about this. and He was really anxious to know about it. So he came down uh, into Appalachia. It was October, November and he was in Boone, North Carolina. And this, this was back in the day when people still pumped gas for you. And he was talking to the gas station attendant. And he told us, you know, I've come down here because I want to hear those people who talk so funny. And the guy putting gas in his car, you know, thought for a second. He says, well, I think you're too late. He says, what do, you, do you mean they don't speak that Elizabethan English anymore? He says, no, no, no. I mean, they've all gone back to Florida now. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we were not an isolate. Yeah, I don't know how to put it to rest. I mean, it's, it's just not true because there was always movement. I mean, one of the great stereotypes, one of the bad stereotypes of Appalachia is we are the way we are because we were isolated. That was never true. We were always involved in commerce. There was always people moving in and out. And so we weren't just some little piece of, you know, 16th century Great Britain that gets dropped into these mountains and stays that way. It's a Southern accent. You know, there, there, there are Scotch influences, but there are other influences as well. And some of it's just sort of the way we talk sounds a little bit like stuff you read in Shakespeare, which is not a bad thing. <laughs> nope. Shakespeare's pretty nope. good. And, and there, there are things we preserved you know to, to call it out uh, elizabethan it's just it, that's way on out there well and, and you, you're talking about you know appalachian culture being very adaptive and not being isolated it's still that, that means it undergoes a significant amount of change over the last couple of hundred years and oh, yeah. so you know and this this is the question a question folks have wrestled with too depending upon how you define appalachia does appalachia still exist in 2020 yes <laughs> well one thing we had to do we had to divide it into regions i mean there's slight difference in the culture there's southern appalachia central appalachia and there's a northern appalachia that's up in pennsylvania and all it's very different southern and central are, are very similar the big difference being coal but yeah it does preserve but, but you know a culture changes over time every culture does you know, there's no such thing as a static culture unless maybe it's dead. And, and that's that's kind of a sore point. When I listen to Appalachian music, you know, I, mean, I, I listen to, you know, to old time musicians, but also, you know, listen to the Kentucky Headhunters or something like that. You know, they've always, you know, you know we've always evolved and been really important. I mean, when I lived in the Blacksburg area for a while. And I used to hang around with people who, who were clog dancers, we were flat footers. And I had, a, I had this 18 year old girl from New Jersey tell me one time that I wasn't doing it right because she had learned a, a traditional way of doing it. And I says, well, the way to do it right is to go down to basically your local honky tonk on Friday night and see how the people are dancing there. Because to say there's only one right way to do it is to say the culture is dead and it never evolves and it never changes. It always changes and evolves. So I think the roots of it are still there, but it's an evolving culture, just like all cultures are evolving. I think there, there's something in, in the human psyche that makes us long for the olden days when things were better, simpler, you know, more earthy. We were closer to earth, to, to nature, and, and yet we like having antibiotics and the internet so that we can just Google things about Appalachia and get that information at in our fingertips and things like that. You're right. It's, it's, it's very much a balance. Let me give you another uh, musical metaphor. People who play traditional music, they're attracted to it because it's traditional music. 
And, and it's just, it's really good. I heard somebody ask Elizabeth LaPrell, who's a very young ballad singer, why she sings the ballads she does. She said, well, I sing the good ones. We, we stopped singing the bad ones a long time ago. <laughs> but musicians are by nature progressive. They're always wanting to sort of put their own little you know spin on it. So it's, it's, it's kind of like riding a bicycle. You have to pump both pedals or you're going to fall over. But it's this tension between maintaining their tradition and, and bringing in the new at the same time. And, and that's what keeps it vibrant and alive. Because um, I've seen musicians who would come in, be very traditional, and then sort of go off somewhere into outer space and circle back around. Right. <laughs> come back because the tradition's there. It doesn't change. From another source, I picked up a phrase recently that, that I really like, um, and I would apply to myself. I call myself a selective traditionalist because there are things in the tradition that you don't want to just let go of because they're really good and they work. People ask me why in the classroom I do stand-up lecture and do a lot of Socratic stuff and, and teach on the basis of personal relationships. It's because that works. <laughs> it has worked a long time. And I don't need to show movies or um, you know, do clever stuff with video in order to, to, to do that. So, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So we try to do that. But if it is broken, then we need to go in there and tinker with it. But not discard it wholly, correct? No, no. So let me let me ask a question for me personally. You know, we're 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 here in in Northeast Georgia. That's where the History Center is based. We look at a lot of different kinds of history, and I grew up in this area. And when I went to, you know, when I went to college and I went to do some research on Appalachia, so much of the the body of work has focused on you know the coal mines you say the coal mining area and things like that and it seems that to me anyway southern appalachia has certainly gotten short shrift in in the the body of work and in the academic purview why is that do you think oh first off you're preaching my sermon <laughs> and, and, and we're trying to change it because the first thing I recognized when I got here to, to, to the University of North Georgia, because we were still North Georgia College State University then, I remember having a conversation with the department chair uh, bemoaning the fact that I could not find good research in North Georgia. I've got one good book that I use uh, by uh, Jonathan Saris having to deal with the Civil War. But if you want to go into history and you're looking for unplowed ground, you are in the right place. There's a, a desperate need. It is getting a little more play now. And I think when, when, when people first started into Appalachian studies, maybe this is another direction to go here for a second. Um, the field is only about 40 years old. I mean, personally, I would not trust any book more than 40 years old other than one or two that were published in the late 70s. All the good work is new. And a lot of it was just, you know, people like you and I who would hear the stereotype and go, well, that doesn't sound like my grandparents. You know, they weren't like that. And so it was this question of what's wrong with Appalachia? Why does it have the problems it does? And we've kind of been peeling the onion, you know, going through these layers. And sort of the first big problem we ran into was industrialization. And industrialization in most of Appalachia was the coal mining regions, which it was incredibly exploitive and demeaning of the culture. But we realized that, that wasn't the only place it was going on. There's not enough work done on the timber industry. There's some big work, work being done right now. In fact, I've got a graduate student who's doing a study of, of the timber industry and her community in North Georgia. I'm really excited about it. You know, it just didn't catch on as quick 
it's a really rich history and it's just being explored in the last 20 years. I'm not quite sure why it happened that way, but I think it was just this people got attracted to that sort of coal culture early on and they were paying more attention to that and less attention to the others. And that's one of the reasons I did my dissertation on what I the way I did is because I looked at the re- region on the other side of the Great Valley and went, people are studying that. They haven't studied my family's side of the valley, and, and that needs some work done. And there's some getting done now, but um, it's it's thin. It's really thin. Well, folks, there you have it. Glenn and Barry both think that Southern Appalachia is way cooler than the rest of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, Dr. Whittemore, I appreciate you being with us today. I would love to have you on again because we we haven't even touched on one of the, the great, well, I won't say the high points, but one of the great discussion points of, of Appalachia, and that's the stereotypes and trying to define those, defeat those, perhaps even acknowledge a couple of them. But but if you're if you're willing, we could have you on again and we can just dive into that subject head first. Yeah, well, you know, time flies when you're having fun. I know, it it, it really does. It really does. And of course, yeah, this, is a, this is a fantastically important and interesting subject, not just for me personally, but for the History Center as well. Yeah, well, it's, it's the Northeast Georgia you know, History Museum. You know, it's, it's who we are. You know, you ask the people in Georgia, they seem to think it, you know, Georgia ends up about Gainesville. Uh, <laughs> there's a whole other section of the state that doesn't really get covered. And I'd be more than happy to come back and be with you again, uh, more than once if necessary. Perfect. Yes, perfect. I would love that. And I'll, uh, you know, with what you just said with Georgia stopping at Gainesville, I'll tell one story to take us out. Not so much a story as, as a recollection growing up where I did with mom and dad. Uh, you know, in Blue Ridge, anything south of LJ was Atlanta. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you were, if you were heading to, well, why don't, we have to go all the way to Atlanta for that. And it's like, you know, do you mean Gainesville? Well, yeah, but it's Atlanta too. So, so maybe, maybe some of us aren't quite as isolated as we like to think, but apparently we sure wish we were. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Whitmore, thank you again. And folks, thank you for tuning in to Then Again at the Northeast Georgia History Center. We will see you next time. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. If you've enjoyed listening to Then Again, please give us a review and make sure to subscribe. Follow our YouTube channel and Facebook page for free weekly live streams on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern and special members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Digital memberships to the Northeast Georgia History Center are as low as $3 a month or $35 a year, and that gives you access to special member only live streams and content. You can always support us with a donation of your choice by going to www.negahc.org. Thanks. See you next time.